0: Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought Podcast. This is an episode 24 of the podcast from CAF's Think Tank Giving Thought, in which we look at big themes and issues affecting philanthropy and the work of civil society. Uh, I'm your host, Rod Davis, and stop the presses, everybody. Exciting news, we have an actual, genuine interview today. Um, I've been promising it for a few weeks now, and some of you might have started to think I was a Walter Mitty-esque fantasist, um but i have actually been working way behind the scenes lining up some interviews and this is the first fruits of those labours um and very exciting fruit it is so it's extremely lucky to be put in touch by um a mutual contact uh, so hat tip to to ali goldsworthy um with uh, one of the authors of a best selling new book uh called new power how it's changing the 21st century and why you need to know which is making quite a lot of noise um at the moment Uh, It's written by Henry Timms and Jeremy Hymans and I was very lucky to speak to Jeremy today. I was uh, aware already um, of a bit of the thinking behind this book because Henry Timms, who's one of the the co-authors, was also the founder of the Giving Tuesday movement and CAF, who I work for um is the organization that leads giving tuesday in the u k and so we have kind of relationship with henry um and I was aware he 'd been working on this this idea of new power for a while um i hadn 't met uh, or come across uh Jeremy before, although actually having seen all the things he 's uh, worked on throughout his career um I did actually know many of them, for instance, he was one of the co founders of the um the social change uh, organization avaz um and also co-founded get up which is a australian political organization that was uh, hugely successful in the, the mid 2000s in kind of energizing um a, a new wave of young people to to get engaged with politics over there um so i sat down well I sat down over skype this afternoon uh, and had a chat to jeremy about the book and about Uh, a little bit of kind of what their thesis on new power uh, might mean for philanthropy and civil society and some of the kind of key questions that keep coming up uh, in this podcast. Um, It was a good chat and we uh, touched on quite a lot of issues around sort of decentralization and the challenges of shifting power away from from existing structures. So I hope you enjoy it um, and I will be back at the end of the show to round things off. So enjoy. great so yeah thanks very much for for making the time and, and coming on the podcast um i've just been reading the copy of the the book that i bought last week actually and um really enjoying it and it's it's amazingly relevant to kind of a lot of the issues i've been working on um and that we've covered in this podcast so it'll be great to have a chat about it um i guess a good starting point for people listening to to this who might not kind of be aware of, of the idea behind it and and the kind of core thesis of the book if you could just spell out in a nutshell what the idea of new power is and what the sort of distinction you're trying to draw between new power and old power is?
1: Yes, sure. So, um, I mean, the basic, the central distinction that we draw, we we sort of think of new power as this ability to harness the energy of the connected crowds that are now kind of all around us. And if you think about, um, you know, Bertrand Russell's very straightforward definition of power as the ability to produce intended effects... Essentially, new power is the exercise of power uh, using this ability to harness crowds. And we contrast that to old power. So a simple analogy that we start with or a comparison that we start with at the beginning of the book is this distinction between think of the Harvey Weinstein uh, model of exercising power, power very much held as currency, something that you can hoard, that you can use to uh, spend to reward your friends to punish your enemies to protect yourself to create a hierarchy that you sit at the top of um and you contrast that with the way the me too movement that helped to ultimately topple him sort of operated and that movement uh, um is very much one that doesn't work like currency you can't actually hoard the power uh there you could have lots of people try to harness its energy as they have been doing and it sort of surges across the world and as it does it changes shape as it moves from geography to geography from industry to industry Uh, and, and so it has a very different properties
0: yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think it's it's a a powerful idea. I guess one of the the things that that sort of immediately strikes me that I think is really interesting about where where this is all going to go is is going back to that Russell quote about um, you know power being a kind of uh, achievement of of intended purpose. I guess one of the the things about where your idea of new power seems to rub up against old power structures is is a big challenge. It seems to me is actually often the difficulty is the intended purpose from an old power perspective doesn't necessarily fit with what you get out of new power structures so it's actually very difficult to kind of guide it in in the way that you might want to if you want to to keep sort of traditional control over things do you think that's going to be a challenge for you know existing organizations certainly from from my perspective in civil society in the world of philanthropy getting on board with new power and really kind of harnessing it to to drive their missions forward
1: Absolutely. I, mean, I, think, I think it already is a huge challenge, and I think some of the work uh, that this book is about is, is helping institutions that really matter, like civil society and philanthropy, um, make changes and adapt to this new world. And that doesn't mean throwing out everything that they know. It doesn't mean throwing out the essential old power skills, which are still very needed, uh, you know, today. But it does mean learning some new skills, some new lenses through which to view the world. So I think to your point, you know, we, we use the sort of the fun example in the book um, of the, the, the Boaty McBoatface fiasco, right? So, you know, obviously um, folks in the UK are very familiar with this. When we tell American audiences about it, they're, um, they're very amused. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you think of that as an example of this is an old power institution, you know, trying to find some way to engage the public in its work. Um, it you know, obviously <laughs> does not achieve its intended effects. But, but what's interesting is you know, how you approach that. So if you're playing uh, a longer game here and you're NERC, the institution that, that launched this, and you're thinking, how do we engage the public around science? How do we create a new generation of citizen scientists? How do we energize people around our work? Then if you take that lens, even if you don't get exactly what you bargained for, It may be that you're actually achieving those intended effects much more effectively than you are with a repertoire in which you're containing and controlling everything, but you're not actually being effective at achieving those bigger goals.
0: And I think this is a really kind of interesting lesson and a very relevant topic for for kind of philanthropy, which has long struggled with the issue of power dynamics, because obviously individual philanthropists or funders, one of the key challenges is you can give away as much money as you want. But if you don't give away power as well, then you're kind of perpetuating an imbalance. And and we see this in sort of the aid world and the, the acknowledgement that you need to kind of empower people in the developing world to find their own solutions. But fundamentally, it hasn't happened as much as it might because it's just really difficult. And And do you think that's kind of going to be one of the the challenges? Is it even if people see what's happening in terms of new power and think, wow, that's exciting and we want to get on board. Actually, the finding ways for people to feel comfortable giving away control and power is actually, you know, is really quite difficult to do.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's a big theme of the book. So what are the ways to to unlock that? We tell this story about NASA early in the book, which is uh, there was this moment where NASA, very big old power institution, um, uh, was under threat, its budget was being cut, people were accusing it of not being innovative. So it tries this open innovation experiment where it, it takes certain challenges that it has out to a broader public in an attempt to kind of engage them in the work. And um, you end up with this situation where there was this success that came out of it. So... There was a particular problem in heliophysics around how you predict solar storms. And there was a a telecommunications engineer from New Hampshire who kind of came out of uh, nowhere and uh, massively improved on the algorithm that NASA scientists had developed. So there was this moment of kind of excitement and celebration, they were called into the White House, they had this big meeting, and then what happens is that there are these two very distinct camps that emerge at NASA. So, uh, you know, the, everybody thought this was going to be great, and then it essentially descends into mayhem, and you get these, these, this, this, this conflict between the people who are really excited about engaging with outsiders and the people who are very resistant to it. And really, the, the crux of it was the threat to the professional identities of the rocket scientists uh, who, uh, who who objected to this. So in the research that a particular academic from NYU who was there and embedded with NASA at the time did, she would ask people, well, you know, why do you object to open innovation? And instead of answering her question, they would just start reciting their degrees and talking about their professional achievements. So if you think about a world in which you're a scientist, all of your kind of identity is invested in this idea that you are the genius who discovers something? Who has a great moment of insight? The apple falls on Newton's head. Uh, you know, in her words, there was this distinction between the scientists for whom the lab is my world, and those who saw it differently, who who could imagine that the world is my lab. And that's you know, attention in all you know old power institutions, I think, and the work. And we really you know try to offer some very concrete. Uh, Principles and paths in the book is to actually help make that change and that change isn't about you know Sort of outsiders disrupting things and coming in and breaking everything It's actually about finding within the organization the people with legitimacy To lead this kind of change who can then kind of be a bridge between old and new power So we identify these sort of characters in the book um, that can help these organizations start to make some of these transitions. And one of those characters is what we call the shapeshifter. So someone with unimpeachable institutional credibility, um, but actually who is then able to say, okay, I'm leading the way to change. We also talk about this bridge character, who is whose job is to kind of um, connect old and new power within an organization operationally.
0: Yeah. And I I loved um, in the book, the the comparison between the the bridge, certainly when it comes to technology and what you, you uh, label a digital beard. So somebody who <laughs> yes. essentially is in place to make it look like you're embracing technology, but actually, you know, it's just kind of, it's just window dressing. And I think that, a, that's a lot of that out there. Yeah. And I think that will resonate a lot with people, you know, that I talk to in the philanthropy and charity world who kind of who get technology and kind of want to get civil society up to speed with it. But one of the big challenges they have is, is just the massive cultural shift that's required. I mean, there's some pragmatic stuff about skills and whatever, but really, as you say, it's kind of what it's really about is making sure that there are people in place who are actually helping old power institutions to transition in a way that's kind of helpful and not just seen as an outside threat. Um, yeah and how you know what it, on that particular question one one challenge you quite often get you know when you talk to charities about this is they sort of say well around technology that's great and we'd love to embrace technology and and concepts like new power but you know we're small organisations we're largely skilled by volunteers we don't have resources you know and I often kind of try and push back and say actually a lot of this stuff isn't about that how would you kind of answer that challenge and kind of convince people in the charity world that you know the the technology side of of what's involved in embracing new power shouldn't be seen as something that isn't for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think you know, in its best applications, uh, these kinds of models are actually going to create a lot more value, um, a lot less expensively than than you than, than you would than you would find if you if you stuck just to to traditional methods. So. Uh, an example from the book that I certainly found very inspiring learning about was uh, the example of this um, kind of group of Dutch nurses uh, uh, who formed this uh, amazing uh, group of this massive network now of essentially self-organised teams of nurses co- called Boertsorg, um, which is uh, teams of nurses who do home care nursing in the Netherlands. And what's interesting is that... Um, the unit here is these small self-managing groups of you know 8, 10 nurses at a time. There's very little um, uh, oversight and management of, um, of, of those nurses. The motto of Bertzorg is how do you manage professionals? question mark you don't. And there's only about 45 people in head office and 15,000 nurses. So think about that ratio and what that means. Uh, but technology plays this key connective role. So, you know, the, the nurses have this, um, this kind of infrastructure they call Bertzog Web, where they support each other across geographies. They make courses for each other. They seek mentorship from each other. So it's not traditional management, but it is this very elaborate peer-based support network that, you know, you know is only possible using technology because it sort of breaks you out of, you know, the limits of your local group. So you know models like this can be very exciting and inspiring. they also save save money right so you know Bert's all are getting much better health cal- health outcomes um, much less expensively than kind of corporatized and more traditionally managerial models for home care nursing, uh, and that model's now spreading around the world
0: I totally agree. I think you know kind of if you can find the right tools to do this, actually you get better outcomes and you can you know achieve far more in terms of amplifying. Um, what you 're saying and kind of and driving your mission forward, um, and I, but I think the idea that it costs a lot of money to do this is is kind of a, a misplaced belief sometimes
1: it is and just to, just to add one thing on that I mean I think sometimes you know I think where where nonprofits should be wary is you often see this dynamic where people build these kind of elaborate digital houses you know we 're going to create this new portal for something, and everybody's going to come and we 're going to be the destination for. X and most of those digital houses are lonely and empty, right? And it's much better to go to where people already are uh, and engage them there. So there are there is a fallacy that you know building really elaborate platforms is is is, is the way to um, is the way to bridge this stuff. It often isn't, but uh, but using technology in smart ways, particularly technology that people are already using, uh, and where you don't have to ask people to kind of engage in a new behavior. I mean, that stuff is very effective.
0: Yeah, that's on that technology front, one of the things that was really fascinating to me about the book is I've done a lot of work over the last four years or so on um, sort of disruptive technology and particularly quite a lot of stuff on blockchain, which gets a a passing mention in the book. But one of the things I think is most interesting about that is the way it can be used to decentralize governance structures um, and kind of allow mass scale networks of people acting together bound together by you know kind of smart contracts within the technology and incentive mechanisms but I've always worried that it was slightly a tech solution in search of a use case and the thing that was really great about reading the book is it made me think hang on a minute perhaps the technology and the kind of the social transformation are happening at the same time and these two things will converge um, which, I, which I thought was was really exciting because it's kind of it's nice that you can do things with technology, but if nobody wants to use them to do those things, it's kind of as you say, you end up with these these lovely structures that nobody's actually paying any attention to.
1: That's right, and I, I do think you know we, we, the the book tries to you know it it certainly warns of some of the ways that this new power is being co opted by actors like Facebook or by demagogues like Donald Trump, but we also really do try to point to um, the, the, the reasons for optimism about um, how we can reclaim these means of participation um, for positive ends. And so we focus in the book um, a fair amount on trying to point to positive exemplars which can inspire others.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I certainly read the book as... Um you know, it's, it's very positive about the phenomenon and highlighting that it's happening, but it does highlight, you know, a lot of the potential challenges with it um, as well.
1: Definitely. Um, right. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And, and one of those I, I sort of wanted to pick up on, because it's something we've talked about before on, on this podcast around uh, dynamics within philanthropy. There, there's quite a lot of talk in, in the book about the importance of um, kind of feedback loops within within new power as a way of, Giving people you know a, a shared sense of purpose and rewarding them for their participation and involvement and and one thing that struck me there 's an example you give about the building of this online uh, game and a community around it called star citizen and something that that really struck me was they haven 't actually managed to build star citizen yet from, <laughs> from what i from what I see but but you kind of argue that actually there is um, merit in itself for the people who have become involved in that through through their involvement and and what it 's kind of given to to them the The question i have i guess if if you think about the same thing in the context of philanthropy. There's always a bit of a, a, a tension between focusing on what the donor gets out of out of the act of giving and what's actually achieved with it, and ideally those two things are perfectly aligned. But sometimes there's a worry that you're kind of prioritising what makes the donor feel, you know, warm and fuzzy over actually the kind of cold hard fact of how effective what they're doing is. Do do you think, with relevance to to this idea of feedback loops, that there's a danger in in the future of these new power models putting too much emphasis on how it makes me feel through my participation and lot sort of lets me off the hook a little bit in terms of thinking about what's actually being achieved
1: absolutely i mean i think we we warn of that and you see this phenomenon certainly within the crowdfunding models in general where the thing that uh you know is is viral is not necessarily the thing that is vital and you know there are definitely contexts you know we we point to this funny sign at Davos a couple of years ago, in one of those in, installations at Davos uh, about innovation, and the uh, and the, the the this installation says, um, "What if What if public infrastructure could be funded by the crowd?" Question mark And the Harvard professor Jonathan Zittrain just said, "You know, in other words, taxes." You know, in, in other words, you know that there, there are there are lots of contexts in which you don't necessarily want to decentralize. Um, Uh, Resource allocation in such a way where you tend to actually get even worse outcomes than when they're more rationally allocated So, you know, we're pretty sober about that now in the case of something like star citizen So this is this video game where people uh, In the words of one of the backers we spoke to pay to dream. They've created this whole world of blogs and of podcasts and of uh, You know creative uh, spaces where they can imagine this universe that's being built and it may well still end up being a Ponzi scheme. Like we're, we're, the jury's really out on Star Citizen because the game does not exist yet. But, but really what we were trying to do there is, is say this, this tells us something about, uh, about how to construct models today um, that really engage people. And that is that if you build something in which participation is central um, to the model, you're much more likely to be successful. Um, so when, when we then apply that kind of thinking to philanthropy, um, yes, you're right. We shouldn't involve people, uh, particularly donors, just for the sake of it. But if we can endow their commitment um, by giving them meaningful, non-trivial things to do, then I think there's you know, much, much more likely that we are able to sustain people's interest, engagement um, and funding commitments, certainly over time. So, you know, we were struck when Mark Zuckerberg announced uh, the, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. And, you know, he said, here are my tens of billions of dollars. Uh, I'm I'm Mark Zuckerberg. Think about this guy. Here is a person whose wealth has been built almost entirely on our participatory energies. If anyone understands how to get people to participate online, it's Mark Zuckerberg, right? There are a couple of billion of us doing that. Uh, on Facebook. And yet when he started CZI, he said, you know what, I'm going to have a small group of experts spend my billions. There will not be uh, applications uh, for funding open to the public. And so it was an incredibly old power conception of philanthropy. So there's got to be a middle ground here, right? So you think about someone like Zuckerberg, there's got to be a way to harness in constructive ways the energy of some of those people that he's helped to mobilize rather than shut them out altogether.
0: And it's interesting on, on, on that, the follow-up I always think to, to Zuckerberg taking quite a centralised, old-fashioned approach to that is um, the a few years after that, Jeff Bezos sort of opened up his charitable giving for suggestions on Twitter and got absolutely pilloried for it. People saying that this was kind of fatuous and showed that he didn't know what he was doing. So so I guess it's that thing of like looking like you're not just asking people to make your, your mind up for you, but you are actually trying to engage them because there's a purpose to doing that. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something, just what you were saying there. I thought I picked up on that quote before about um, somebody saying, you know, crowdfunded. um, This stuff is actually, you know, essentially what we're talking about there is taxation. One thing that made me think is, again, is another challenge that that we already kind of see in the philanthropy world. And and I thought in a new power context might become more pronounced is that it's pretty difficult to get anybody to fund, you know, boring or unsexy problems or approaches and actually you know what you said there about the viral isn't isn't always vital that it strikes me that might be a challenge if the dynamic becomes so swayed towards new power if there isn't a way of also kind of getting people to to think a little bit kind of you know against their immediate instincts and against what you know what the kind of the crowd wants to do because otherwise i worry that some of these you know difficult and unpopular causes might get marginalized even more than they are at the moment do, do you think that's a concern
1: i didn't quite understand your question so I'm
0: basically saying you know there's already a challenge with unpopular causes you know things that people you know don't necessarily want to and often that comes back to taxation you know funding or kind of big institutional funders if you basically have more and more of the the energy behind this being driven by the the crowd through kind of new power. One of the, the difficulties you get is sort of groupthink and people increasingly flock towards those things that are, that are already popular. And, and actually, you might end up with some things that are extremely important, but are unpopular or awkward or difficult for whatever reason, getting totally shut out of the picture, even though it's still very important to fund them. Do, do you think that's something that we kind of need to be aware of in this potential shift to new power?
1: Well, definitely. I mean, you know, that's certainly that's a characteristic of crowds, right? And, and we talk in the in the in the book again about you know, there's a natural tendency to, uh, you know, to kind of stick with what's um, sexy and visceral and generates emotional intensity. That said, I think there are models that kind of bridge this gap. Interestingly, so you think about a model like Give Directly. So Give Directly is uh, giving uh, the agency not to. Uh, us as donors, but actually it's giving the agency to the to the to the folks who are receiving funds So you think about that um, So for those who are not familiar with give directly It's a model which basically is facilitating cash transfers and making various experiments with sort of basic income uh, Around the world in very poor countries um, What I think is interesting about that model is it says to us, okay, you're you know, you're gonna give money You can't pick the most heart-wrenching story, right? And when people are given that opportunity, all of these other structural biases kick in, as you could expect. Um, but we're going to give—we're actually decentralizing uh, and giving agency to the people who receive this money in an unrestricted way. And 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 to me, that's that's probably a very interesting uh, way to you know to approach that. So you can you can market that in a very new power way. You can certainly create really interesting feedback loops. Um, for the people who are giving money to something like give directly but part of that bargain is you don't get to pick the sexy thing
0: yeah and no it's, it's a it's a good point an interesting link actually it's something we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast before the kind of the way you can use models like give directly to make giving more rational and and kind of less uh empower the people on the receiving end rather than on the donor end um i just just i'll round off just with a couple of questions i don't want to take up too much more of your time Um, One thing, kind of an overarching question that I was really keen to ask is, in in writing this book and kind of promoting it, do you you feel like what you're trying to do is to advocate for new power, merely to sort of highlight that it's a phenomenon or to offer a warning? Or are you trying to kind of keep a balance? Because it seems as though you've been painted sometimes as just kind of, you know, a a totally unquestioning advocate. And actually, when I read the book, I felt like it was was much more balanced. Um, And I kind of wonder how you see
1: it. We really believe that new power is a neutral phenomenon, you know, very good and very bad actors can harness this energy and are doing so right now, um, uh, we, of course, uh, as people who've been very involved in building movements, uh, of various kinds, we believe in the, in the incredibly transformative possibilities of giving people more agency and more ability to participate. So we are pro participation, um, of course. Uh, we think that needs to be matched with a set of values um, because more participation does not necessarily um, produce better social outcomes or make more people more powerful. And so, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely not the case. As I mean, anyone who reads the book will will discover that we're sort of cheerleaders for this phenomenon. What we actually see as our primary mission with this book is rather than see new power as good or bad, uh, think of new power as a set of skills that we all need today. And in a world in which um, people are co-opting those skills, extremists, demagogues, uh, climate deniers, anti-vaxxers, you name it, we have an obligation to get better at these skills, the the kinds of people who listen to your podcast, so that we can do our own work better, so that we can spread these values more effectively. um, And that's central to the mission. So the reason we wrote this book and, and, and the work around the book is really making sure that these skills... Which, you know, we can lament the fact that, uh, you know, the world has changed, but it has, um, uh, that these skills are in the hands of the angels, and that what we end up with is not a world in which we only have new power, but a world in which people um, doing good work in the world have an old power repertoire and a new power repertoire, are able to combine the two, are able to use one and the other when circumstances demand, and therefore can be more effective. And that's really what the book's all about. It's a very practical book. It's about leadership. It's about movement building. It's about spreading ideas, it's about building communities. And we wrote a book like that because that's the underlying mission of the work.
0: And as I say, you know, I, I thoroughly recommend uh, to, you know anybody listening who's you know, kind of found this chat interesting, they should go out and, and get a copy of the book and check it out. Because there are all kinds of great examples in there, but also some really good kind of practical advice on how to start thinking about you know, navigating your way through this, either because you're excited by the possibilities or because you're sort of terrified by the challenges. But, but both ways around, I think it, it gives a really kind of useful framework for, for thinking about it. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Jeremy, for, for talking to me today. I've, I've genuinely enjoyed it. Um, as I say to everybody, do go out, get a copy of the book. It's called New Power and it's uh, in shops now. Um, and thanks very much again for that, Jeremy. It's been a real
1: pleasure, Rob. Thank you.
0: Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Jeremy. Um, I certainly did. I thought it was really interesting. And I do definitely recommend having a look at the book. This isn't one of those uh, podcast interviews where I just claimed to have read the book um, and was lying through my teeth. Um, I have actually made quite a lot of effort to do so I can't claim to have read it in as much detail as I'm going to go back and do um, but certainly as as I said in the chat to Jeremy it's full of really interesting examples and I thought there were definitely some ideas in there that really kind of chimed with things that I'd thought and and sparked new ideas for me so, so I definitely recommend checking it out Um I won't be putting any links to anything in the show notes this week because thankfully one of the good things about an interview uh, episode is that I don't necessarily need to do that um but um as usual if you've enjoyed this like subscribe share with your friends and um, if you've got any thoughts on things we could be doing better uh on the podcast or things you like drop us a line at giving uh, thought at caf Um and if you've got any ideas for people we could interview in the future that you might be able to put us in touch with you know please do that starting to sound a bit like mark Marin at this point but that's fine Um, If you like the kind of things we've been chatting about and want to read more uh, about them, check out the Giving Thoughts section of the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. And other than that, it just remains to say I will see you next time. Bye.